the dropout rate uh, in English classes historically is in the range of 80 to 90 percent. Oh, wow. Our dropout rate was 35 percent. 65 percent of those who enrolled in our class matriculated. We called some women who were otherwise uh, leaders in the stake to attend these classes, to be able to be supportive of uh, others, to be able to see uh, that someone like them could learn English and encourage uh, another woman who had some stature in the church, in the stake, or in the district. And I think all those things helped make our programs more successful, not because we we're better teachers or we had better technical material, because we were way more sensitive to their personal situation and we changed conditions to make it easy to participate and ultimately uh, to be able to graduate. I want to give a shout out as we start this episode of the Cultural Hall to Kurt Frankham, our buddy over at Leading Saints. Uh, he was the one who said, you know what, you should have Norman and talk about uh, all the things he's done in his life and certainly the uh, opportunities that he's had to serve within the church. And uh, I have to tell you, I got really fascinated about the church in Africa in this episode. So if that's something that excites you, you need to continue to listen. If leadership excites you, that's something that you need to continue to listen for. Or if you just like listening to every single episode of the Cultural Hall, well then obviously you need to continue listening to this episode. Always love hearing your feedback, whether you do that in the form of a review, wherever you're getting this, but especially Apple Podcasts. I know that there are a lot of you that listen that haven't done it yet, or if you take a moment to share this episode or other episodes with your friends, people in your ward, maybe old mission companions, whatever the thing may be, love it if you would do that. Or as always, we can ask you to become a Patreon saint. Go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. Why, that's what this here show, available in podcast form, is called. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. I'm joined today by Norm Hill. Now, uh, he has one of those biographies that if I was to read it to you, in 10 minutes when I finally got done with all the things that he's done in his life, you'd be like, wow, where is this interview even going to go? Neither Norm nor I really know where we're going to go uh, within the discussion that we have today. I'm sure that we're going to talk a little bit about uh, his most recent book that will be available here pretty soon. Uh, we'll also probably talk about his service uh, as a mission president in Ghana. I'm sure we'll touch about that. Uh, and then also he worked for Exxon. You know, you've heard of Exxon. I uh, worked for them for a considerable amount of years. So I'm sure we'll touch on that. Norm, thanks for being here. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to the discussion. So Norm, let me ask you, uh, are you a convert to the church or are you a, a lifelong member? Let's let's start there, very beginning. Yeah, lifelong member. I actually trace on my dad's side back to Peregrine Sessions, who was one of the first pioneers into the Valley. And uh, both sides of the family, long-term members, uh, five to six generations. So within that lifelong membership, have there ever been times where you've been like, well, I'm not really sure, or times of less devotion? Yeah, for me, no. Um, and I felt like when I was 14, that I needed to read the Book of Mormon same age as the prophet Joseph Smith. I read it. I felt personal inspiration. I had an experience not unlike President uh, David O. McKay, where he felt like, hey, I should be able to get the same kind of revelation and inspiration. I remember going fishing uh, in the Uintas and a place that I had identified where I felt like I would be able to get some major inspiration, some revelation, and it never happened. Hmm. Uh, it was one of those things where I went back home and said, you know, I just need to rely on the faith that I have and the experiences that I've had. And I've had a, a number of faith confirming experiences since then, but nothing that I would say was thunderbolt and lightning. 
Which my mind, just so you know how I kind of work, when you say thunderbolt and lightning, I also think of very, very frightening, and then I think of the Bohemian Rhapsody. But that's just how my odd mind works. Let's go back to uh, what you're talking about, which is, to me, a, a, a spiritual gift. It's a unique spiritual gift that I don't know... I know it certainly isn't um, sort of lined out when we think of the spiritual gifts that are found within the scriptures, but for so many people, we have this this time where we, you know, are very close and then find ourselves without the church and then find ourselves wandering within. I, I very strongly um, believe that kind of the path or the life that you're talking about to just have always known and to always be able to do that is in fact a spiritual gift. Yeah, that's a good point. A couple of my children we have very lively conversations with. They're all grown. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've decided we're going to use the terms simple faith, searching faith, and skepticism. And skepticism, uh, essentially, somebody today in, in culture would say, you know, it's good to be skeptical, not to just take everything at face value. Um, the scriptures actually talk about scorners and mockers. And I think that's somewhat what a skeptic is. It's regardless of the evidence, I don't think this is correct. Mm-hmm. I think for some people, uh, it's very much a spiritual gift to have simple faith. I'd say I'm more in the searching faith category. Uh, I've taken enough personal review to say, all right, uh, there's going to be some answers and there's going to be some places where there are no answers. Go for it. As with Anything that's really accomplished, I believe, in life, you take your best shot. I like uh, the phrase George Bernard Shaw, a famous skeptic, Mm -hmm. uh, agnostic, once said, you know, nobody really knows whether there's life after death or if religion is right or not. Construct your best sense of that reality or listen to others and then rely on it, cling to it as if you were in a lifeboat in an ocean. And whether or not that lifeboat's going to get you to shore or not, it will at least sustain you for an extended period of time while you work everything else out. I like that point of view. I think I'm an optimist by nature. I used to say when I had a real job (laughs) that I know the evidence is against me to be an optimist, but it's a life choice. I'm choosing to be an optimist. And I think it's Uh, both the better way to go. And as I've personally tried to assess using George Bernard Shaw's analogy of what's the best constructed reality available, that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, when I hear you talk about uh, being a lifelong member, and I appreciate you sort of expanding on that, and I love those words of of George Bernard Shaw, um, I, I can't help but think of those those stories that we hear about the the lifelong truly devoted father or mother or both father and mother and the kids who are questioning and 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 that sort of absence of empathy for someone who has never been through that particular experience it doesn't have to be with faith but since this is what we're sort of talking about how do you approach those that don't have the same experience and be able to um to, to, to meet them and to empathize with where they are. And I guess I'm wondering, because you mentioned you have some kids who are sort of lively and spirited. I don't know if that's code for maybe they're within the church or not, and, and not necessarily in my business, but serving as a mission president too, I have to imagine that you had missionaries that would come to you with questions or were questioning. So how, how having not really ever experienced that, how were you able to break down that wall and be able to, to dwell and be with them in the question, or were you able to? Yeah, I think uh, for all of us, a challenge is to truly be empathetic. We use that word easily and lightly sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, as if as if it's the same even as trying to just listen. And certainly, listening is the beginning part of empathy. But I think there's something much uh, deeper as well. There's a Robert Redford film called Brubaker, where he wanted to really understand what it was like to be a prisoner. He was going to be a prison warden. And so without telling anyone, he checked into the prison and became a prisoner for a week or so uh, in the the film. I think it's the equivalent of that. You have to, for somebody who has questions, uh, everybody has questions. Richie, I don't think there's anybody lifelong member, devoted or not, that doesn't have 
unanswered questions. And my faith is those unanswered questions I'm going to pursue as much as possible. I'm not just going to put them on a shelf, but I'm also, from a scientific point of view, I'm going to recognize there's some things you just don't know answers to. Mm -hmm. Other religions talk about the mystery of religion. We don't use that term very much, but it's a reasonable um, analog to say, yeah, I'm, there's things I don't know. I'm going to try to figure them out as I go. I, in our mission, at one point, we had missionaries from 26 different countries. It was the Ghana Accra West mission. Wow. We called it our own little mini United Nations. <laughs> and each of those missionaries has a story, and their stories are very different. We had a missionary who was a boy soldier who was conscripted at 14, uh, pressed into service for a rebel group that he didn't support, uh, was trained as a boy soldier. Um, only in his early 20s was he able to escape and spent a fair amount of time trying to figure things out, stumbled onto the church and was called as a missionary to our mission. And good young man, a week into his mission, his companion called me and said, President, I have a problem. Uh, this missionary you've assigned to me, he doesn't believe that God has a body of flesh and bone and oh, that wow. Christ and Heavenly Father are separate. He thinks God's a spirit. What am I going to do, President? <laughs> I said, Elder, you do the same thing you would for anybody you're teaching. And eventually I spent some time with this missionary as well. Now, my experience couldn't be more dissimilar growing up in a small farming community in northern Utah compared to him as a boy soldier in East Africa. Mm -hmm. But the ability to empathize is somehow to put aside preconceptions and to say, you tell me about your experiences, and I'm not going to evaluate those. I'm going to try to understand those as well as I possibly can. Not just once. You know, that's the Redford experience. He didn't just listen to a prisoner. He didn't go out and do just interviews. He, his was lived experience. I think the same kind of thing was true. Um, I tried as a mission president to have lived experiences, not just to live in the mission home, go spend nights with missionaries in the African bush, where it's hot, where you can't get food that you'd like. Uh, you have to have a mosquito net in order to get rid of mosquitoes that are going to try to give you malaria. Those are the kinds of things that promote empathy. It's that sense of there but for the grace of God go I, that if until you get to that point, until you sort of strip away our own cultural heritage, faithful or faithless, convert or lifelong member, skeptic or a devotee, until you get past your own beliefs and preconceptions and understand where somebody else is truly coming from, we, we are never going to be able to bridge divides between boy soldier in East Africa and farm boy in northern Utah. When you were younger, so you, you go to the to the uh, wilderness, you head to the Uintas, you come back, you, do, you don't get the experience that you want, but you sort of persist within what you're doing. You served a mission as a young boy? I did. Where I did served you... uh, in the California East Mission. It's a series of other missions now, San Bernardino, Arcadia, Riverside. I studied at Utah State University and Weber State University, eventually went to BYU and graduated there with a master's degree in organizational behavior. My claim to fame is that I was Stephen Covey's last research assistant and last uh, teaching assistant before he left on a sabbatical and never came back. <laughs> That's the kind of sabbatical I can get behind. The one where you don't ever have to come back. And then professionally, and I sort of alluded to it, you worked with Exxon. Tell me what you did with them. I did. Uh, I started in organizational development. Uh, which which means what? Work. What does that mean? That means looking at processes to see kind of what works and what doesn't. Mm. Uh, so a specific example, I worked uh, first in, uh, well, in Houston, but out in New Orleans with our offshore operations. People work a seven and seven schedule, seven days on, seven days off. They live offshore in a small community, if you will, anywhere from uh, five to 50 people on a platform. And I was looking at uh, how the work schedule affected their home life, uh, how 
there, we had a variety of different schedules of when you started and stopped from a transition point of view, what was lost in translation from one shift to another, from one crew to another. Uh, I looked at uh, supervisors and how from a supervisory process, a leadership point of view, people led or didn't. This was in the 70s and uh, Exxon at the time had for about uh, three years had hired African-American employees to work offshore. There were a number of conflicts, places where I'd try to sit down with work groups and discuss differences and create structures, not just through training, but through processes to promote understanding. So I was in human resources uh, my whole career. I bounced uh, back and forth between Houston and New Orleans. I spent uh, 25 years in Houston, 12 years in New Orleans. Then I went overseas. Uh, I did first a lot of business trips to Africa, Indonesia, Korea, and then I was assigned to Nigeria. And I lived in Nigeria for five years, uh, 2007 to 2012, came back to Houston, and that's when I was called as a mission president to Ghana, served there 2013 to 2016. When I came home, am I currently, I'm working at uh, BYU at the Ballard Center for Social Impact, and that's what I do right now. I'm an affiliate associate professor at BYU. That is a storied career to be sure. I can't help but think that, you know, those experiences that you had with the individuals that were working offshore and and, and those things would have prepared you for uh, the time to be a mission president. Is, is there something sort of... Um, I don't want to say nerdy, but that's kind of what I'm thinking of in my mind, that, that as you get the opportunity, the call to be a mission president uh, in a country that you've never lived in, where you know you're going to have missionaries from all, you know, you mentioned 26 different countries. Is there something just sort of, I, yeah, I guess nerdy that as you got that call that with your organizational behavior background that you were just like, this is so great. I'm going to have an opportunity to use an experience and take from all my past experiences and, and, and join all those things. Was there an anticipation and an excitement within that because of your training? From a, both training and from a personal interest point of view, for sure. So I have a good uh, friend, Paulette uh, from New Orleans, who's black, who when I came back from Africa, said, uh, what, what drew you to Africa? You know, we kind of saw you when you were here. You came to weddings. Uh, I helped bail her son out of a very difficult situation. And, you know, we were close. Uh, what drew you to Africa? And I said, Paulette, I don't know in particular. Um, it, it's not like I went out after it. But when I first had my experience, when I first went to Nigeria in 2001, and started to talk to people, uh, Richie, religion is in the air in Africa. Mm -hmm. And where in the United States today, you know, in the South, it's easy to talk to evangelical Baptists as long as you talk their lingo. lingo. Mm -hmm. uh, in Europe today, the phrase is the only people who go to church in Europe are all the tourists who want to see the sites. You know, <laughs> there's a new discussion in France on French legacy that essentially um, tries to disassociate itself with Catholicism. Religion is on the demise in many places. It's on the rise in Africa. And uh, I just felt comfortable the, when I first was in Lagos. It's a city of 15 million people. I grew up in a town of 500. Yeah, so very uh, similar, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and yet I, I just felt like, hey, this is... This is the right place for me to be. Hmm. And whether I was in Angola or Chad or Cameroon, uh, places that I went to uh, often on assignment or Nigeria where I live, I felt like, you know, this, this is kind of home for me. Hmm. And so to be called to Ghana, it, it was a chance to, to say, uh, these are my people. How do I help be uh, a force for good? I want to take a break right now. Uh, when we come back, I want to further uh, the discussion about what the church is like, what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is like in Ghana and in the African continent. Uh, let's come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Hi, friends. Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. 
I get a lot of emails with feedback from customers. Here's one. Dear Dan, I just had the best experience ever. I bought a computer from Shane at your State Street store. I asked several what I thought were really stupid questions. Shane was super courteous and made me feel comfortable through the whole process. People need to understand how important it is to support a local company, especially when your experience is so good. PC Laptops really does love me. Signed, Satisfied. I love hearing feedback like that. It really just gives me the chills. It's the whole reason why I got into the computer business in the first place. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop for as low as $7.99, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. That means if anything goes wrong, we're going to take care of you. Just check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. At PC Laptops, we really do love you. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, if you are not a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, please become one. We would love for you to do that. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall and you can make a pledge to be able to help us out. Uh, if you do so, you get to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group uh, where you can see the videos of all the interviews that we do. You get to see Norman Hill's just handsome face if you become a Patreon saint. Otherwise, you'll wonder, I wonder if he really is handsome. You can find out for sure if you become a Patreon saint. It's patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. Now, uh, Norm, I'm not going to be so formal to call you Norman again. Sorry about that. Uh, we're best friends, basically. I want to know what it was like for your wife, and and it would probably be better suited that I ask her, but you're here with me. She finds out that you guys have got the call that you're going to Africa. What was that experience like with her, with you? Yeah, well, of course, again, we lived in Nigeria. She knew Nigeria. She and I had traveled in South Africa. It wasn't her preference, honestly, Richie, mm -hmm. uh, of a place to go. Uh, she was less comfortable in Nigeria than I was. You know, Nigeria is kind of a tough place. There's a lot of corruption. Uh, there's guys with AK-47s on most street corners who are there to enforce rules and regulation. And uh, when you get outside of an expat bubble, uh, people are very different and in many cases poor and are looking for assistance, help, and don't mind asking for money. And I'm not talking about a beggar on the street. I'm talking about just people you might meet at church or people at a concert or at a play, same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I, I got comfortable with that. I didn't see this as unreasonable requests. I saw instead that here are people who are, uh, in some cases, uh, trying to better themselves, seeing an opportunity, uh, and don't mind asking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Nigerians are more aggressive than uh, others in the continent, and there's a kind of a cultural difference. Ghana is uh, oftentimes called the Switzerland of Africans never really had a civil war. It was the first country to uh, be democratic and able to be released from its uh, colonial power, Britain, in 1957. It's, uh, it's not particularly prosperous. Uh, I think the average annual income for a family is somewhere around $2,500 a year in U.S. terms. Wow. So... Um, it, it's it's uh, a poor country in many ways, but uh, but kind of growing. Uh, I had been to Ghana a couple of times before I was called there as a mission president. Living in Nigeria, I went to the temple in Ghana, mm -hmm. and uh, so it was not unfamiliar to uh, to me at all. Now you uh, mentioned you mentioned there's a temple there. There's also an MTC there, isn't there? There is. Yeah. So, so that so that sort of um, indicates to me that as far as the church goes, I'm not going to say a hub necessarily, but maybe hub-like for the church on the African continent. Would that be a fair? Uh, it definitely is. So just, again, by contrast, there's two MTCs in Africa, one in Johannesburg. That MTC has the capacity for less than 100 uh, missionaries. The MTC, uh, there's a new one. When I was there, it was in Tema, just outside of Accra. 
Now it's actually on the temple site in Accra, that new MTC today, if there were missionaries who were there, mm-hmm. could handle over 300 missionaries. Oh, wow. And it has the capacity to expand the vision that when the MTC was approved, the new one, is that it would be able to grow and be able to have up to 500 missionaries at a time. So um, just, again, by contrast, it's almost three times as large as the MTC in Johannesburg. Ghana, as you and perhaps many of your listeners may know, there were organized members of the Church of Jesus Christ not approved by Salt Lake in Ghana in the 1960s. And the first missionaries, two uh, couples, the Canons and the Maybes, first arrived in Ghana and Nigeria in 1978. In Ghana, they found um, Billy Johnson, who had organized branches, mostly in the Cape Coast area, but not exclusively, and uh, thousands of adherents. And most of them, not all, but most of them, when the missionaries arrived, they began to uh, be baptized officially. There were a few doctrinal discrepancies that needed to be addressed, uh, in particular that there was no paid minister. Mm-hmm. And some of those who had been receiving uh, a salary before they were baptized, they had no other job. It was a huge sacrifice for them. Nearly all willingly accepted that, found other jobs, most of them menial, and were faithful members of the church from the day they were baptized. It's an incredible story. It is a story that we, I don't think, discuss enough. Uh, Certainly for those that are hearing this for the first time, they go, wait, wait, wait. Did Norm just say there were congregations of people that were waiting for the missionaries to come and after the priesthood ban was lifted in 1978 and these people could essentially have leadership from within that were waiting to join the church? Is that what he's saying? And the answer is yes. Uh, why do you why do you think we maybe skirt away from this or don't proclaim it from the, the rooftops, to use sort of that uh, that terminology? Why do we not talk about it more? Or within the church in the, in the United States, why don't we talk more about what's going on within the church in Africa specifically? I think there's plenty of information on the church's websites. Same kind of experience in Nigeria. There were organized congregations. It's there. It's obvious. I think it's just far away. Hmm. Um, you know, the church, we tend, we've sent so many missionaries to Central and South America, we tend to talk those stories. Mm-hmm. That's where the general authorities outside of the U.S. have generally come from. So in Africa, it's just, it hasn't been the same it doesn't have a long enough history hmm. within the church to get the same publicity, if you will. Mm-hmm. But the stories are there. Um, one of the, again, unique stories is uh, after only 10 years of the church being organized in Ghana, the military dictator, president of the country, Rawlings, put a ban on the church. Hmm. Uh, no organized meetings could occur. Now, was that, was that specifically just for our church, or was that any sort of Christ-believing church in general? So there were two international congregations, the Jehovah Witnesses and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, whose meetings were banned. Okay. The Jehovah's Witnesses primarily, because of their lack of support for military and government uh, institutions generally, mm-hmm. there were two small evangelical groups that were also banned, it's a much longer story of government intrigue on why those two were banned. I've done a little bit of original research. It would take a while to explain. Let me just say that there were altogether those four groups, two small local evangelical groups, Jehovah Witnesses and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The interesting thing is that uh, Rawlings' half-brother was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Huh. And... Um, it's unclear from the historical record. He, he definitely tried to influence him uh, not to have this ban on the church. There's a lot of theories on why it happened anyway. I think the important kind of thing to recognize is that for 14 months, members of the church, after only 10 years 
of the church being established in Ghana now no longer had any outside support. There was no area presidency, no mission president, no senior couples, no young missionaries, all gone. You could not meet in an organized way. You couldn't have a Sunday meeting. There were some members who were incarcerated. Stephen Abu, who was a personal good friend, was uh, put in jail for his beliefs. There were church buildings. The belief was that uh, there were gold or, or treasures hidden in churches. Some of them were desecrated. During that 14-month period, members of the church had to support each other. It's true ministering in the very best sense of the word, because you couldn't meet in any kind of organized way. In some cases where there were two or three or four families who were together, police were called, they had to disband. Hmm. During that period, 14 months, when the church was allowed to again uh, be able to have open meetings, very few converts left. I mean, there were some. Sure. There were people who would say it's not very many. It was probably in the range of 20 to 25 percent based on some research that I've done. But during a normal period, you may have that kind of uh, loss not because people have lost their testimony. In Africa, one of the differences uh, in activity has less to do with loss of faith and way more to do with economics. I have a job. I'm close to the church. I'm able to go to church. I lose that job. I have to go somewhere else. It may be in an outlying area. There's no church to get to. Mm -hmm. So I'm counted as less active or not attending church when nothing has changed in my beliefs only changed because I had to relocate and there's no church available where I'm currently residing. A, a significant um, point sort of in my mind as I as I watch General Conference and we hear the, the names of the places where temples are to be built, I, I notice a significant amount more to be on the African continent. And hearing you tell me about the people of Nigeria and the people of Ghana, those are just a couple of places. There are, I'm, I'm not sure, I wish I could pull a statistic out of my mind uh, or out of thin air and say there are 15 temples that are going to be built or that have been announced or in some phase uh, within the church right now. But behind each of those temples is a community that faced and continues to face similar things that um, that you've shared sort of that that takes place here in Ghana and and also in Nigeria and 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 I don't know that that's any different than you know when they announce a temple for the people of Connecticut or the people of Arkansas but for some reason uh, m- my mind and my attention truly is drawn to these people who we don't kn- there may be plenty available about them but within, Within our United States, our you know, United-centric vision of the church, as we work to try and become a worldwide church, these stories you know need to be shared, and it's exciting to hear them to be shared, and and can be faith-promoting to hear them be shared. Serving as uh, a mission president for these people, these twenty-six different countries that uh, missionaries came and served from. What was and I'm this will be like making you pick a favorite child. What was your what was the biggest takeaway or the most impactful kind of lesson that you learned from serving there amidst such a diverse population? Uh, yeah, it is tough to boil it down to one. Um, I'll, I'll give you two if that makes it easier. <laughs> well, let me just tell a couple of stories, um, if if I can, and then uh, we'll sort of go from there. Uh, I think uh, one takeaway is just like in the U.S., you know, missionaries come from a variety of different experiences and places, and um, neither their commitment nor their background is the same. On the average, in our mission, uh, about 45% were North Americans. Uh, about 45% were Africans and 10% were Polynesians. Hmm. Of the Africans, our average time in the church was less than three years. And most of those had only been in one branch. So you can imagine uh, missionaries 
experiences in the formal part of the church. They hadn't been to seminary. They hadn't been to young men. Um, they, their, their view of the church was limited to a relatively small branch in a fairly rural place. So one of the things that I was really keen to do is to try to have uh, missionaries have a better sense of what that's about. And, and, it, and it struck me one time when I went to a, a branch and there was a woman there who was trying to teach primary songs to a group of probably 40 children. <laughs> she, she was the only adult, unfortunately, there, there other than, than my wife and I. And she had no experience with these primary songs. I am not a, I don't have a musical ear, but I started to sing and do all of the motions that primary children learn about primary songs. And the kids loved it. <laughs> so I went back to the missionaries and said, all right, here's what I want. I want uh, every one of you for the next month to go to primary in your ward or branch for at least 10 minutes and to help out with primary songs. Hmm. And, and we focused on that for a month. And some missionaries kind of caught that. Again, the North Americans had plenty of experience. I saw this as a way for, in particular, the African missionaries to, to get experience with primary. And I became a little frustrated when some of the North American missionaries didn't do that. They said, well, we need to stay with our investigators or our new converts. I said, it's 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so I was at a particular zone conference and I was going on and on about this, how important it was. And I turned to a missionary that I knew was from California. And I said, Elder Poland, look, they don't know your same experiences. You're in California. You know about uh, the church there. Go teach these primary songs. He said, President, I've only been a member of the church three years. I never went through primary. I don't know anything <laughs> about these primary songs. So it was a good reminder for me, the assumption I made, oh, you're from California, you know about the church and about primary, that somehow he would be able to uh, be part of something that he had never experienced. Hmm. He had great experiences, though, Richie, teaching primary songs, and uh, it changed how members of the wards and branches saw missionaries, hmm. no longer just to bring new converts in, but instead have some meaningful service. One of the other ways we tried to do that in, in Ghana, although English is the official language of the country, many uh, Ghanaians, especially when you get outside the city, don't speak English. They speak a local African dialect. The predominant dialect in Ghana is tree. It's spelled T-W-I, but it's pronounced tree. And um, in particular, the area presidencies, I think, had emphasized appropriately English language, but it excluded people who were less well-educated because they didn't know English. Right. They, they wouldn't be able to understand what was happening in a, in, a, in a conference talk. And in particular, because just given African patriarchy the way that it is, most families who are poor send their sons to school where they can and not their daughters. And disproportionately, uh, Africa is the only place, as I understand it, in the, in the world where we baptize more men than women. And I had several visitors from Salt Lake ask me, well, why is that? Why, why are we baptizing? You know, yeah, what's your process? You guys, you guys, are, are, you guys, guys are, are doing this so well. How, how, come you're, how come you're so effective in baptizing so many more men than women? I said, well, actually, it's a problem mm -hmm. because women can't read. And they don't want to come to church because they don't understand English. It also meant that women in congregations were forced to rely upon their husbands or a few leaders to be able to tell them what's in a lesson manual mm. or what's in the handbook. And so I eventually wrote an article about this it's in the ends and how words can change our world. I set out to say, 
the best thing we can do for the church and specifically for the empowerment of women is to have English classes. And there's plenty of English classes that are available. We tried to do things to create incentives. So as a, for instance, we held the classes at night and we provided flashlights to women, a minor thing, but to be able to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, we provided refreshments, they're called small chops <laughs> uh, for, for women. We provided all of the textbook material, they didn't have to buy it. We did things to make it easy for them to be able to attend these classes, less from a technical point of view and more from a personal environmental point of view. We changed conditions to make it easy. And we did such things as we gave, uh, in some cases, women a key to the building so they didn't have to wait for somebody to unlock the building Hmm. uh, where they were held in, in our buildings. And we had tremendous success. The dropout rate uh, in English classes historically is in the range of 80 to 90 percent. Our dropout rate was 35 percent. 65 percent of those who enrolled in our class uh, matriculated. We called some women who were otherwise uh, leaders in the stake to attend these classes to be able to be supportive of uh, others, to be able to see uh, that someone like them could learn English and encourage uh, another woman who had some stature in the church, in the stake, or in the district. And I think all those things helped make our programs more successful, not because we're better teachers or we had better technical material, because we were way more sensitive to their personal situation and we changed conditions to make it easy to participate and ultimately uh, to be able to graduate. That's a beautiful message for anywhere in the church, right? There are practical applications of what you just stated here within the United States that I think would allow us to be able to teach people or to reach people that we aren't currently reaching. Uh, A great principle to be taught and then even further to be understood and then even further to be applied. Let's take another break. Let's come back in the third block. I'm going to talk about your book that's coming out. I'm going to talk about why you wanted to be a book author. Jeez, that seems like not the easiest thing to do. Uh, We'll do that and the three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. That's coming up in the third block. We'll be right back. A busy full summer from Best DJ in Utah. Go to bestdjinutah.com. Why, that is me, Richie T, and I would love to be able to play music at your upcoming wedding, or maybe you're having a company party, or maybe you're thinking already for the holiday party. Whatever it is that's on your schedule, you should get the number one highest rated DJ for the state of Utah. Now, I know you're thinking, I don't even live in Utah, Richie. Would you ever do an event in Washington State? Oh, I've already done that before. Would you ever do an event in California? Been there too. How about Louisiana? Uh Uh-huh. Texas? Yes. Point is, uh, you know, you, you throw shekels my way. I'll come to wherever you're at. We could even combine it and make it an episode of the cultural hall mind blown if you are in need of a dj at all or someone in your families get married would like to be able to talk to me i would love to be able to talk to them it's best dj in utah.com imagine running a small business today it's challenging imaging and internet presence is an absolute must even with that you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe now imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients imagine Lennon design whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation advertising media and promotional materials Lennon design is your partner in business they'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you when you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, uh, do not forget you can become a part of the Cultural Hall Back Row Facebook group. That's simple. You don't have to pay anything to be a part of that. It's just a bunch of people nerding out on the different episodes that we publish. Uh, you can find it just by searching on Facebook, the Cultural Hall Back Row. We do have to let you in, and then we scooch everyone to the center and make sure we have plenty of seats for you there on the back row. Uh, it's the Cultural Hall Back Row. Norm, you've written a book, What They Don't Teach You at the MTC. What is this thing? What have you, what have you created here? You know, the church has tremendous resources uh, for missionaries. Uh, Preach My Gospel, Adjusting to Missionary Life Now, 
teaching in the Savior's way, and they're wonderful principles. What I've tried to do is take those principles and create applications to be able to say, let's, let's see how, how we can apply some of those in a variety of different contexts. In a few cases, um, there's some things that I think are pretty unique. I'm, I'll give you one as an example. Yes, please. So um, mission presidents often worry about dinner appointments. I mentioned I lived in Houston with, and I served uh, as a counselor in the mission presidency with two different mission presidents while there. There were mission presidents at times who said no dinner appointments at all. And other times when mission presidents said, okay, 45 minutes or an hour, and you have to teach a lesson. I think both of those illustrate, you know, there's some, we recognize something good is happening with a dinner appointment, but there's also maybe something that's not good, whether it's a waste of time of missionaries staying too long, or it's families who are putting on a, a Thanksgiving feast for missionaries, and maybe that's inconvenient. In Ghana, uh, members, of course, like members anywhere, love to have the missionaries over. But in many cases, it was a hardship for them. Hmm. And uh, after just spending some time looking at that, I said to uh, the missionaries, okay, we're going to start reverse dinner appointments. Hmm. And instead of them inviting you and them putting on a feed for you, you take dinner over. Hmm. And again, at first, missionaries were, well, we don't know how to cook that well ourselves. What do you mean? And so at our zone meetings, at every zone meeting, uh, my wife would put on cooking demonstrations. Huh. And these, these weren't just um, somebody standing up front doing it. We would bring supplies as well as we could, and missionaries would make stuff. Hmm. The specific uh, thing that we became known for was banana bread that missionaries would make banana bread and take it to members' homes. Again, Richie, it's the kind of thing that flipped the conversation. Instead of members taking care of missionaries, it's now missionaries taking care of members. And in our case, there were missionaries are giving us subsistence and allowance for food. In some instances, that subsistence was more than in certain areas than members made. Uh, in a monthly period. And so I said to, to missionaries, look, if, if somehow making dinner for members takes all of your subsistence or too much of it, you tell me and I'll figure out whether from my pocket or funds that I have with the church, how to increase your subsistence for that period of time. Mm -hmm. But you're going to have to tell me in detail. You know, it's not just uh, president, I overspent. Yeah, I need more money, I need please. More. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to know the people that you visited and uh, and what it costs. That again, it changed our missionaries. No longer were they there with with sometimes comes across as uh, the message of uh, Hey, we're here to help you with your missionary work. You owe us. Mm -hmm. It was we're here to show you a degree of hospitality that the New Testament emphasizes. We don't talk that much about in the church, but nonetheless is fundamental to the gospel. This sense of we're going to take care of you. Hmm. We're, we're not here just to be fed. And it flipped the conversation in ward and branch after ward and branch. I think it's, a, it's an example of the sort of way in which missionaries can do things differently. And I build on that in this book, What They Don't Teach You at the MTC. What are, what are the kinds of things that are outlined in Preach My Gospel, Adjusting the Missionary Life, Teaching in the Savior's Way, but not uh, shown from an application point of view? Here are some ways to do it, and hopefully uh, some new insights. What it sounds to me, and in a in a respectful way, is it sounds like almost being a disruptor, right? We think of disruptor, and we think, oh, maybe that would be, you know, someone who would stand when it's supposed to be quiet and be reverent, and not that kind of disruptor, but taking what is done because it's always been done that way, and saying, let's let's look at this from a different way, and or and or 
really understand why it is that we're doing that way and empower what it is trying to do. Would that be accurate? Yeah. Uh, Clayton Christensen, before he passed away, is a personal friend, and he's kind of invented the term uh, disruption in organizations. And yes, it's a good fit. The way I would frame it is it goes back to our earlier conversation on empathy. Mm-hmm. If, if you really know and understand a situation, you don't take it at face value. You look at what's happening and then say, how, how can we be more effective? So I didn't, I didn't go out per se trying to say, how do I empower women mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and beat the drum? I looked at, gee, we're, we're, not, we're not baptizing as many women as men. We're not retaining women uh, in the same way that we are men. And the women we have in the church, there's a pretty small, tight group. What can we do to change that? Hmm. And it was only by understanding that situation and empathizing enough that I was able to see, you know, the key to this is all about learning English. It's fundamentally what needs to occur. I have another example I had two mission districts. Districts are sort of like stakes. They report to a mission president. So at the end of the first year that I was there, I looked at fast offerings with each of the two districts and uh, with the the branch presidents. And uh, there were very few places where any of these branches were uh, able to meet the needs of the members with the fast offering contributions that came. Again, mm-hmm. people are poor. Yeah, and and we talked about well, what can we do? And the uh, overwhelmingly in in each of these two groups, they said, you know, the biggest problem is medical bills, and you need to build a hospital here. Hmm. Hmm. And it almost became for for several different conversations that we had together, uh, a chant, you know, hospital, yeah. hospital. <laughs> I was like, no way are we going to be able to afford to build a hospital in this remote area in the African bush. In thinking about it, praying about it, looking at individual members' situations, uh, what, what seemed to me instead of uh, there were a few cases where medical bills were high and they were forced, there isn't the insurance that's available in the U.S., forced members to come to the church and receive uh, assistance. And, and I felt like it's always going to be that way, and that's what we're always going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how we're going to help these members who have these kind of situations. What about rank-and-file members? And eventually, in meeting with several of these branch presidents, what we said is, uh, let's start chicken farms. Let's start uh, ways for members who are on the margin, not able to kind of sustain life or send their kids to school because most kids go to a private school in, in Africa and have to pay a fee. But rather than simply rely on encouraging members, we did something that's called micro-franchising. Uh, Micro-franchising is not unlike Taco Bell or Burger King, except it's on a tiny level. The church's uh, self-reliance programs have available something called member-assisted grants. And with that member-assisted grant, we started an incubator. We, me, I bought chicks from France or Belgium, had them shipped to Africa. It's amazingly inexpensive. You can buy a chick for about a dollar and have it shipped to Africa. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but we didn't expect members to do everything by themselves. Again, like a franchise, mm-hmm. our goal was to do some of the marketing, some of the upfront supply chain, and give to members who were in need, identified in need, these laying hens they'd be able to produce eggs for themselves and their families. And then with the excess that they didn't need, sell it to be able to buy other food that they needed and be self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. We began with 10 families. We expanded it to 20 more, 30 families. After uh, two years, all of these, of these 30 families, 
26 of them still had chickens, still producing eggs, still taking care, being able to pay fast offering instead of receiving fast offering. Wow. Um, it, it's remarkable in the church. The church's view in self-reliance uh, circles is chicken farms don't work. Mm. And I would agree they don't work if you're just going to give chickens to a family. If you think of this micro franchising of pieces that are difficult from supply to customer taken out of the equation and all you're working on is operations, it becomes much more manageable for people who are especially inexperienced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's an unparalleled success. And it's, uh, I, I think it's an opportunity to do more. A guy named Steve Gibson, uh, BYU, invented the term and the concept. I stumbled across it and applied it and found it to be very successful. Wow. Wow. Well, we've gotten we've got to the point in this conversation where we ask you the three questions that we ask everyone. Uh, before I do that, I want to remind people that you can go to the show notes for this particular episode and you can find a link to purchase the book, What They Don't Teach You at the MTC. Now, Norm, the first question is, is do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? Yeah, I'm, uh, I have two. I'm You're only supposed to have one, Norm. I'm the priest quorum advisor in our ward. And I'm also a called institute teacher. Right now, um, because of COVID, I'm not, I haven't been released, but I'm not teaching at the institute. Ah, okay, okay. Well, then I'll let that pass. But you were about to have a letter sent to Salt Lake on my behalf, or on your behalf, from me. Second question is, you, if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Um, it, if I could uh, pick one, it would be, a uh, stake mission preparation instructor. I think there's plenty of things that we can prepare missionaries for that are that are missing, mm. and and they're getting enormously good experiences in seminary, in priesthood, in young women, but they're sometimes missing some life experiences that I think are are critical. I think there's uh, lived experiences when we break down what missionaries actually do, uh, skills and abilities. They're called competencies. I have in the book a chapter where I've gone through Preach My Gospel using a method that's used in organizational analysis, identified competencies, and then ask missionaries or potential missionaries to assess themselves, not anybody else. You assess yourself where you feel like there's areas you can improve, where you have your strengths, because it's as important to build on your strengths as it is to close gaps. Mm -hmm. And this process is described in a, in a chapter. I'd love to be able on a state basis to be able to lead missionary preparation uh, programs, seminars, workshops. All right, I'll talk to some people, Norm. I'll take I'll get it taken care of. Now you've made the request. The last question we ask everyone and and ask you to interpret it however you would like. The question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? My favorite part of my faith. I mean, in a word, it's the plan of salvation. It's this sense of we lived before we came on earth. It's such a radical concept. Uh, I remember in Louisiana having a long discussion with several evangelical ministers, how, how different that is, mm -hmm. and yet how satisfying it was to them. And one of them eventually wrote a book called The Mind of Christ, where <laughs> uh, he, he was so overwhelmed with that concept of a pre-mortal life that we, we lived before we came to earth, that our agency is something that is eternal, God didn't make us the way that we are, and that there are some things that even God is limited from doing because of our agency. And so it answers a million other questions as well. That's, for me, it, it's, if I were to say what is both mind-boggling and at the same time reassuring the plan of salvation, a pre-mortal life here on earth to gain experience, and so to some extent, 
whatever happens to us is always going to be good. Even the bad stuff is going to be good. Mm-hmm. And that in the eternities, God's going to make it all up. That he's going to look at this missionary who was pressed into service as a boy soldier uh, and all of his hurts and pains and and some of the guilt that he has, he's going to wipe it away and it's going to be a marvelous eternal experience for him because he got through it. Well, Norm, I hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Brother Brent, Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast, and BigMikesProducts.com will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat on the back row.